0: So I'm Paul Broadwin, I'm not a clinician, I'm a social scientist. Um, so I, uh, um, um, I, I was trained in a field called medical anthropology, and I'm a classroom teacher. So um, um, today what we'll be doing is, you know, it's, 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 it's actually a pretty small group, I've given a similar talk to like hundreds of people in a, big, in a big amphitheater, and this is, this is like much better. We'll be doing um, some, sum, I'm going to talk about, uh, present a perp- perspective about ethics and the ethical issues in dealing with um, an FSP kind of program and that kind of population. But a lot of the learning this morning is going to take place in small groups in your tables. Um, and uh, to that end, I've handed out um, the, uh, kind of like a little mini uh, casebook of ethics cases from from this world, does everybody have a copy of this in front of them? So let me say at the start, then, um, although I'm, I'm not a clinician, I'm, um, um, I spent two years working as an anthropologist, as a researcher, in a so- single small case management agency um, um, in a program which, in Wisconsin, which is where I lived, it, where, where I live, is called a community support program or CSP. And there's a lot of jargon in this world. So we all know about FSP because that's you guys here in LA County. Um, it, uh, who here has heard of assertive community treatments? A few, okay. So FSP is a. D- AS, ACT? ACT? All right. So so ACT is, is, is kind of a, the, 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 the granddaddy, and FSP is a sort of derivative of it. And then actually, ACT was, uh, which, which is the first such small scale outpatient community based. Mental health services intervention for people with uh, persistent and, and um, severe psychiatric disorder. Um, um, that was the first one that was founded actually in Madison, Wisconsin, which is about 90 miles from where I live, in the 1970s and 80s. And then FSP is a sort of um, whatever four fifth fifth generation descendant of that. In Wisconsin, where I live, now we call them CSPs, which stands for Community Support Program. But bottom line, FSP, ACT, uh, CSP, kind of the same outpatient case management model. So for two years, I embedded myself, is what anthropologists like to do, embedded myself in a um, a single work group, nine social workers, um, one nurse, one psychiatrist. That was the group. And I did everything that the, the social workers and case managers did. I went out to see clients. Um, I attended staff meetings. I sat in on one-on-one counseling sessions, um, uh, talked to people sort of in their cars as we were driving around the city, talked to people in the hallways after the staff meetings. And I wrote a book about the, the ethical issues involved in that kind of work. I think that's why I was invited to come here and share that with you all today. Um, so before we go on, um, now you know who I am. Can I just see by, by sh- show of hands, who here this thing think about? in terms of job title or disciplinary background, who here is a social worker? Yes, Okay. Who here is also a case manager? Pretty much the whole room, Okay. Who here has a master's degree in counseling? Any kind of psychology background? Is is anybody here a psychiatrist? Anybody here a psychologist? Okay. Okay. great. So um, that's exactly the kind of the world that um, that I know and so this is uh, an ethics talk basically but it's a different kind of ethics talk from the ones that maybe you've been to already um, because I'm not interested in this talk and certainly I'm not the right person to come here and tell you how to make your decisions. Right, to try to, and ethics talks sometimes have a quality of like controlling people, regulating people, giving a list of do's and don'ts. um, And um, uh, do people, and I I know in Wisconsin um, uh, uh, social workers have to take like six hours every two years of an ethics and boundaries, continuing education. Is that the case in California? Okay, so this is not that. (laughs) You'll be happy to know. you, you're not getting any, uh, you're not getting any credentials for, uh, for, for coming here. Um, what I want to do instead today is uh, oh, here, there's another chair. If people are missing. What I want to do is go upstream, basically. And you know, issues of ethics and boundaries and do's and don'ts is what you kind of encounter every day. But I want to go upstream a little bit and say, uh, ask why your work in FSP, which I'll just in general, you know, outpatient case management for people with severe mental illness, why your work raises such ethical questions in the first place. Like not necessarily how to resolve them, you know, or what what your discipline's code of ethics says you should do or not do, but why it raises those questions in the first place, and. Um, um, and then we can use our time here to think about a different way, to, to think about a way of thinking about those questions, not to give you the final answer. So my first point uh, is that working in outpatient community-based settings for people with severe mental illness is very difficult work, extraordinarily difficult work. And this works. So here's, here's a pr- perspective. And there's a, a quotation, two slides. Two of the most oppressed people in mental health are clients and their case managers. The case managers are the lowest paid, the lowest on the organizational hierarchy, and the least credentialed. Yet, they have the most cases. They shoulder the biggest burden. They have the most ambitious goals established for their work. So they have to to complete the most paperwork. They go to the same meetings as others. They're the most supervised members of their organization. And I was very impressed by this when I was doing my research in, in, in Wisconsin. You have the case manager on the ground doing all the hard work, and then the supervisor, and then the agency head, and then some bureaucrat and auditor from the Department of Mental Health, and then up there somewhere is the governor. You know, you know, um, you're at the bottom. So they have the least control over their jobs, in some ways the least influence over organizational matters. Okay? So perversely, the people who are the least paid and least credentialed are. Shoulder our our, what's the word I want our our, our, um, we we citizens pass off the hardest work and the sickest individuals to individuals who are the least paid and the lowest on uh, the lowest on the organizational ladder okay Um, So why am I standing here today because I think the ethical issues that you face every day make your work more difficult and more frustrating and even worse and here I do speak from my experience as, as you know, sp- embedded for two years in an FSP-like program. These issues often are not talked about. My, my experience is that ethical issues come up every day, and they're rarely talked about. Like it's a very busy, fast-paced kind of work. You know, something you know, people are just struck with. Uh, you know, gee, I mean, how do we handle this? You know, you know, wh- like what's the right thing to do? But then guess what? You got to make some decision by 5 p.m., right? And uh, it gets papered over um, and. Um, uh, it gets covered over in the business of the workday. In the long run, the, sort of, I think the, the deep ethical um, issues can make, if, if they're not talked about and if they're not resolved, can make people feel bad about their jobs. Um, they can cause burnout. I know that's a topic of another, another workshop today. They can t- cause the whole system, the, the frustration, kind of the unfinished quality of uh, the debates over ethics, can cause the whole system to move away from the ideals of what, in my city, we call person-centered care. Because if you feel horrible about your job, if you, feel, if you feel like your job is such that you cannot do the right thing, eventually, sooner rather than later, you're going to quit. And if more and more people quit, agencies have high turnover. And uh, that's bad for clients. And of course, if you stay but are burnt out, because you figure this is like a no-win situation, I'm just going to muscle through, um, that's even worse for patient care. So my point is, if we don't take the time to figure out the ethical landscape, if I can use that phrase, um, uh, that we're working through every day, the whole system kind of collapses. I mean, people will show up to work, but the system is not doing what it should do to really help people recover and retain their full humanity and you know become, become full citizens. Okay? Um, So, as you can tell, I really believe in the mission of outpatient case management for people with very severe illness, Um, programs like FSP. It's clearly one of the best, I mean, in general, these programs, assertive community treatment, family, uh, full service partnership, in general, these are the um, the best models of treatment that are out there, okay? I mean, at at this stage of the game in our society, we don't necessarily have any better models. Um, But even the best model depends on the self-understanding of the people who operate it. Right. Why is this work so hard? How can I manage the difficulties? So ethics matter, in my opinion. Not just because you, you should follow the rules. You, know, you all learn the rules about you know, c- confidentiality, you know, equity, um, boundaries, and, and we'll talk about that stuff. But because having a deeper fr- understanding of the frustrations of this line of work, w- how this line of work can become so ethically murky, makes you uh, more confident and more dedicated Um, 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 a worker, Um, um, therapist, clinician, social worker, and all that. Um, So we will talk today about some of the standard ethical issues. Um, um, Boundaries, retaining confidence, dual agency, equity. These are the sort of, you know, the, the, the bioethics kind of jargon phrases. But my argument is that when we talk about ethics, we should do more than give a list of allowable and prohibited behavior. And so here are the goals of this, of, of this morning. I want to look carefully at what I call everyday ethics um, as they arise in typical cases, and that's your handout from a community mental health uh, um, a practice. I want to develop some new ways to discuss and resolve these ethical issues in order to minimize the experience of frustration and also futility, Because right? those are the danger zones. And those are the danger zones for anybody in any healthcare or um, um, social welfare job, right? Um, And and they're danger zones for us, too. Um, And so what are these ethical um, danger zones that predictably arise in outpatient mental health practice? Um, I'll say that, uh, you know, my experience, again, as as a researcher uh, working with... um, um, the CSP that I was with, you know, people said, gee, Paul, you know, you know, we, yeah, the stuff you're talking about, like, we see it every day, but we never go more than, like, two or three sentences into it, because in staff meeting, there's, there's, like, no time, Okay? And, 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 and he's, th- the person said, you know, we don't see the way you see, Paul, we don't see how the same issues arise over and over again. Right? So here we are outside of the field. We're not, you know, uh, we, we have the luxury of this, like, fantastically beautiful conference center and this you know, great breakfast. So we can kind of relax a little bit and go deep into, into issues um, that, in fact, I think do come, up, do come up a lot and are predictable ethical danger zones. So let's start talking. I, 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 now, I want to give some background and some, some definitions. And then uh, I want to jump into a case. So just talk a little bit more about these, these phrases like textbook ethics and everyday ethics. Um, so, um, when I say l- on the left-hand side, textbook ethics, that's the stuff you learn in your ethics and boundaries workshop. You know, you know, m- normative means uh, the norm... Pardon, there's some social science jargon in this talk. Um, um, so normative means norms, you know, do's and don'ts. Textbook ethics are usually written down. It's like really formal, you know. I mean, in, you know, there's, there's um, I'm, I'm sure if any of you wanted to, you know, call upon your, on your cell phone right now, you know, the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics. There it is. You know, it's, it's going to be a long, long website. Um, it's all written down. It's based in philosophy and law. Actually, the field of bioethics has two pillars, you know, moral philosophy and, 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 the, and the law. It's very carefully reasoned. And, and, you know, it's, it's, this is what we want philosophers to do for us, to figure out, you know, um, what is a justifiable path forward when you face an ethical issue. Um, and so we're talking about, for us, you know, rules about um, informed consent, uh, co- co- confidentiality, me, confidentiality and, and uh, uh, boundaries. But here's the key. Textbooks don't cover everything, right? That there are rules and regulations which tell you what is allowed. But they don't cover the personal experience of uncertainty and anxiety when you feel like you're messing up. Textbooks, don't, they don't touch that, right? That stuff is on the right-hand side. So um, there is a sort of what I call everyday ethics. People do talk about it or they think about it. They don't write it down. Um, they're not trying to come up with a sort of standard, like one-size-fits-all ethical rule. It's th- when they talk about ethics, they talk about it as it, tailored for the job in the case at hand. And when they justify, like when I say, well, you know, uh, why did you make that decision, you know, um, um, in staff meeting this morning, let's say, oh, it just kind of felt right. You know, because I've had like five cases like this since I began working here. And, you know, I know I've made the decision different ways. And usually making the decision this way is the right way to go. So that's why I say... Everyday ethics is backed up by personal intuition and their own personal, personal experience. Um, so we're talking about the right-hand side today, okay. and the point is you don't learn the right-hand side by reading a book. Um, so let's talk about this another definition here. Uh, everyday ethics, the way I define it, these are um, reflections about right and wrong that are made in the middle of your work. Okay, they're not made in a college classroom. They're not made in a bioethics seminar or grand rounds over at the UCLA Medical School. They're made like, right now, you know, this case in front of us, what's the right way to go? It's an aspect of your own personal moral experience of uncertainty, not of a law or code of conduct. And it's usually something that you talk about. I'm just repeating myself, really. um, um, uh, These are issues that you talk about with your own work group. By the way, so in the FSP model, um, how large is like a work team? How many people? A lot of, a lot of variation. A what, 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 What's the variation? From a few people to, I don't know, twenty. staff. Oh, really? Twenty staff? Okay. So, uh, At least one uh, discipline per client, so case manager, therapist, psychiatrist, and uh, potentially clinical. Uh, okay, so they have that ratio of like discipline per client, but uh, but then but, but but then the number of staff members could go from like four to, like four to twenty or something. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. So 15 to 1 cl- for most 15 ethics. to 1 okay interesting yeah okay so so in, in in the CSP community support program it's pretty much like 10 to 1 yeah yeah um, okay interesting so roughly in the same landscape so if it's like four or five people or even if it's 20 people that's the that's the world where these ethical issues get get hashed out okay so and then i'll i'll say one one um one more thing before we're going to my next slide. I think that um, case managers and social workers in these sort of programs develop a lot of practical wisdom along the way. Um, 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 and it, again, it doesn't get written down, but there's a lot of, See, I, was, I was chatting with uh, Anthony, who I don't think is in the room tonight. Um, um, uh, some, in, in, in my sense, in working in outpatient community-based services, people who work in that field, like for 10 or 20 years, they're, they become like walking encyclopedias of how the system works, right? <laughs> <laughs> and every system is different. So I'm sure the people in this room who are like walking, you know, in, in encyclopedias of, of, of the Los Angeles County system of public sector services, right? Um, and I know a friend of mine in, in Milwaukee, you know, she, she's been in the system for 30 years, you know, and, at every stage, you know, um, and when she dies, it's like a library is going to burn down, basically, right? Um, it's, it's it's like this wisdom which you acquire, you know, by trial. It's like a trial by fire, um, and this is and th- this this sort of process uh, is how the wisdom gets um, um, uh, laid down. Okay, so talking about this stuff, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm, all I'm trying to do here is be really articulate and clear with clear definitions about stuff that you probably already know. Okay, and in some ways, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm just like shining a really I want to shine a really bright light on it, and maybe you know we'll we'll all all. I'll um, learn from it. Here's a definition, a moral dilemma. So a moral dilemma is, and and here's kind of a textbook definition, when two or more clear moral principles apply, but they support mutually inconsistent courses of action. Okay? So in other words, when a moral dilemma is when you really don't know what to do. You could go in one direction, and there's some justifications for that, and you can go another direction, and there's some good reasons to do that. And you can't go in both, right? So it's a choice point. You really don't know which which like fork in the road to, or which part of the fork in the road to go to. Um, let's work it through with a case, shall we? And so th- these are cases that I developed from my own research. Um, I of course changed the names, uh, but I didn't change the quotations. So this is a. Uh, le- um, I'm gonna, I'm going to talk through the case, and then I'm going to then this first time. I'll show you like one way of making sense of it. And then after that, you'll do it on your own. So Jack Berger is a guy, um, a a client in this program, middle-aged man with a a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Takes his medications, still complains about voices. um, Hasn't worked out with transitional employment because he gets into fights with his boss and coworkers. He lives with his brother which is good so he has some family support Many of these folks don't right so he lives with his brother in a basement apartment in a neighborhood known for gang and drug activity he wants to move he needs eight hundred dollars to pay for the security deposit and one month's rent in a better apartment now over the past few years he struggled with cocaine use and one year ago he received a tax refund from the state and with that money he blew it through he blew you know kind of blew through the money in a three-day cocaine binge by the time it, it had ended, he'd sold all his furniture, and he was soon evicted from his apartment. That's how he ended up living with his brother in this basement. So the ACT team, or how, the case management team, thanks, um, um, is the uh, representative payee. Do you guys have the rep P system in California? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So yeah, right, That it's, it's a world of trouble, as I know, being a rep <laughs> So the, act, the, the, the case management team is the representative payee. It just received his state tax refund check for $1,000. So now you can, you can guess what, what the issue is. The case manager says, look, here's the dilemma. It, so this is a direct quotation. Do you give him the check? Giving him the check is like a loaded gun. Well, but do, or do you hypermanage it down to the last nickel? And he, he will be asking for it. He knows he's getting this check. Did he get it yet, he's going to ask me? And when can I get the check? It's a pay dilemma. Supposedly, these checks are made out to him, and we're not supposed to manage the money for him. But in Jack's case, I just don't know. All right? So, here's how I set it up. Um, and if you have a pen on your hand, you know, in your hand, you can like, um, so th- it's like a worksheet, okay? And so the question is um, what is the, the dilemma that uh, Tom, the case manager, is facing? Now, the left hand side, is the two course like uh, the two things he could possibly do right? it's a dilemma right so it's go this way go that way so i wrote down one thing he could do is um don't give the money Another thing he could do is give the money right? just so keep it simple at the start that's clearly the dilemma he's facing i mean the, the two possible excuse me um uh, um um courses of action now the next column it says personal motives for action which is just a, a fancy way of saying, like, why would he not give the money? You tell me. What? Huh? What? Oh, you mean the, uh, the client. Okay. Okay, so you don't give the money because you're making a judgment call. This guy can't spend the money in a responsible fashion. Yeah, right. Well, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um but, you know, no, 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 it's a good point. But th- the question is, uh, he has to make the decision, like, in two days, right? So so um, it's pressing. But, yeah, so one, one good reason, one feasible reason not to give the money is because the, the, uh, Tom is making a judgment call that Jack Berger won't be able to use it properly. Um, well, he could say also, I don't want to give the money because my priority is to keep the client housed. That's part of my job. And I'm making a judgment call, which... Evi- historical evidence is pretty clear. If I give him the money, he may end up unsheltered in, in, in four days. OK? not just OK. Yeah, there, there is. You know, and these, the, these are good reasons. Um, so um, you're protecting the client. You're keeping the client housed. You're protecting yourself a little bit. Um, and, by, and also, but, but I mean, it's, it's not selfish, because by protecting your own time, you're going to have more time for the other people on your caseload, OK? So lots of different reasons not to give the money. Um, Now, the right-hand column is um, uh, if you're interested in medical ethics, uh, um, uh, if you're not, just don't worry about it, but uh, if you're interested in medical ethics, the textbook norms, there is a norm behind what people are saying. The the phrase they use use is um, beneficence, right? A high-level, you know, ethical principle. In other words, doing good things for other people, right? That means, I mean, that's that's what a doctor does. That's what a social worker does. That's anybody in the healthcare field. In particular, the kind of beneficence you're ta- people are talking about, where, where it kind of fits here, is, is uh, paternalism. Now paternalism gets a bad rap, I mean, it's, it's nowadays. But if you look at the origin of the word, pater means father in Latin. So paternalism means acting like a good father. And the people translate paternalism as benevolent protection. Right? Now it's complicated, of course. But there's a there's there's a kernel of paternalism which is easy to agree with. You know, your job is to protect to, so to some extent your job is to protect the client, and to, your job is to do good things for the client. So there's all good reasons to not give him the money. What are some reasons to give him the money though? I mean it's a choice point. Because other people around the table, I will tell you, other people tell yes, no, you should give him that okay. Okay. Okay, so that's it. it. So, so, then, so, so if, if give him the money is the other choice, the other possible choice under modus reaction, how did you put it? Protect the client's right to self determination. Yeah. Okay. You have to give him the chance to fail, right? Because that's how all of us learned, that's how we became adults. We all were given the chance to fail, right? Yeah, so like allow people to grow, and growth can't be predicted perfectly. Maybe this is going to be his chance to, to rise and shine. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, okay. So, so here's someone who is coming up with, with sort of like a kind of like a compromise between the two possible courses of action. Right. That's right. Okay, and then but but, but then if he says, "F you, give me the money," you're back to ba- uh, base one, right? <laughs> Do you give him the money or not, right? So it becomes another loop of the same. Yeah. The goal of working through these cases is, is it's twofold. Right? You want to appreciate the complexity, but then you also want to simplify it a little bit. Okay. Um, and um, um, just to get a sense of how these, this tiny issue might recur over and over again, even when the details differ, OK? So just to finish off the, the, the case, though, on, on this one page, in the right-hand column under the notion, uh, what, do, what do we call it? Um, uh, textbook Norms of, of Medical Ethics, uh, does anybody know the, the decision to give him the money, what, what would be the sort of like textbook reason? Autonomy, yeah yeah so and, i mean so autonomy in other words you respect the client's choice and a b- bunch of you have said this in different ways it kind of, it's kind of like it's, it's like it's it's like a deep notion especially um if uh, um, in the united states you know our i know as american we're like individualists or whatever right um so um so and, and FYI in, in uh, bioethics, this this g- dilemma between beneficence and autonomy is probably like the basic dilemma in all of bioethics. And you take a walk down to the UCLA medical school where they're paid more than we are, they'll be discussing they'll be discussing autonomy versus beneficence till the cows come home. Right? Right. Okay. okay. Let's move on though, because there's moral dilemmas and then the moral distress. And these are two different things. Okay? Here's the t- a, a, a definition of moral distress. Moral distress is when you actually know the right thing to do, but institutional constraints, in other words, workplace realities, make it impossible to pursue the right course of action. Here is the classic definition of moral distress. It comes from 1984. Actually, so it's, it's a, it's a um, really interesting, um, really interesting issue. Um, and to uh, explain what moral distress t- so a moral distress is different from a moral dilemma, right? In a dilemma, you actually don't know which way to go. It's like a fork in the road. You can go this way or that way. You don't know. In a mo- case of moral distress, you do know which way to go, and just that there's like a bulldozer blocking the way that you want to go. Okay? So it's a different phenomenon. Now, to um, give you an example, let's go to another era of healthcare as fresh as today's headlines, as it turns out um, um, pro life and pro choice. So imagine, you know, here are two situations at the top of your worksheet a and b and it's actually that in in this sense the same situation just with the politics reversed so situation a so suppose you're a pro-choice physician working in a catholic hospital right Uh, this person greets a new patient 21 year old female pregnant in her first trimester who requests an abortion now the physician is convinced that she needs the abortion and she deserves to have it right the physician is convinced that referring to her referring her to an abortion provider i'm sorry um, is the right thing to do, but the rules of his institution prevent, of the of, of uh, 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 the rules of the institution p- prevent her from making the referral. So it's not a it's not a dilemma. The physician knows the right thing to do, by by her lights, right? It's just that the institution says no, you can't do it. Now we can switch the politics in our very polarized country, and but but and make the same point. Suppose a pro-life pharmacist working for a large national chain, like Walgreens, right, is convinced that it would be wrong to sell the so-called morning-after pill to customers. But the company policy says that she must sell it or she'll lose her job, okay? Now, I don't care about your politics about abortion um, or your, your, your beliefs, but I do care that we understand what moral distress means. Because so let's uh, let's just work out just for for t- convenience. We'll work out um, um, the situation uh, for the first in the first case um, of the pro-choice physician. Primate. Okay. So you see how the way this worksheet is set up, the left-hand column has the uh, write down the preferred action, and then well, we'll just do the preferred action. So. In the case A, what is the physician's preferred action? Okay, make the referral absolutely. and what would be the person's motives for this for this action? like Why would the pro-choice physician want to take this action? Okay, okay, so he's a professional oh yeah it's coming fast and furious yeah want to help the patient which is beneficence right the person has professional expertise and you know you're hired as a doctor to carry out your expertise and you said the person has Yeah, that's right that's, that's right this person has her has her own morality. so lots of reasons possible reasons um oh, what, what people haven't said um maybe enable patients autonomy right and then what is the obstacle that's 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 the middle uh, column and what's the, what are the obstacles to that person's preferred action? The job, the job. OK. The, ru- the rules of the workplace. Huh? Policy. policy right, yeah. So, so there's, there's like a, a hospital policy, which translates into particular rules. And if you go against the rules, you get in trouble and you could lose your job. Now, there's not a fourth column here, but the fourth column here would be that physician is going to feel bad. <laughs> that physician might have a churning feeling in the pit of her stomach, right? Because she knows exactly what is the right thing to do, but she just can't do it. That's moral distress. That's it, right there, okay? Now, um, because things are always really complicated and as a college teacher, I like to you know, you know, focus on the com- complexities a little bit. The other possible action th- for this person is not to make the referral. Now what are some possible reasons why this person would agree would would decide not to make the referral? keep their job it's interesting right so so yeah so so they're, they're actually they're actually more like like I signed a contract and I'm obligated to fulfill the terms of my contract. It's interesting, isn't it um, um or an, another, w- w- what are some other possible reasons? Yeah, uh, uh, but, but, the, but the way I set it up is that th- this person is pro-choice. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's what I set it up that way. Well, and, and another possible reason is that... Um, you know, this person could say, well, you know, some of this hospital does a good job, you know, a lot you know, in the hospital, Catholic hospitals often do a lot of, you know, uh, uncompensated care. Like, I basically endorse the vision of this hospital, maybe not just in one case, so I'm gonna play by the rules, because the larger, you know, because I, I, I wanna keep the hospital strong and not waste people's time with, with my own thing. So there's some interesting reasons why the person might, um, might not, Carry out might not want to carry out, or, or, or I'm going to be careful with my words. Possible reasons why this person might consent to the blockage in carrying out her own preferred course of action. It still might leave a residue of moral distress, right? But it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be as, as much as as otherwise. Okay, so. Um, Now, what I'd like to do is move on to a second case from outpatient community. Oh, we're looking at So we have 15 minutes left. Um, here's the second case. What I want to do is read through the case in large group. And then I'm going to shut the trap and <laughs> have you all work, work, on the, work on the worksheet in small group. So here's the case, uh, which I call um, fast food delivery. Right? So here's a guy called Ben Taft, 34 years old diagnosis of schizophrenia, takes his medications. He's, um, he's morbidly obese, right? 372 pounds. Experiences, because of, the, of, of his weight, a significant physical disability. So the scene is an 8 a.m. Uh, staff meeting. They're trying to work through his um, 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 treatment plan. One person says, he's going to be immobile when he hits 400 pounds, as it is now he has to sit and recuperate after walking half a block. And he complains, I can't walk too much. He says, oh, it's all water, I can lose his weight fast. But you know that's not true, he's just, sa- he's just talking. The reality is I'm never going to be able to get him to exercise or to eat better. Why is that? Well, where he lives, all they do is sit and eat. He sleeps, oh, if you think, I understand, I read in the LA Times yesterday, you know, there's an article about uh, housing issues for people with um, mental illness in, in, in California. So it's the same issue in every city in the the country. Uh, He's living in this room and board, um, not a very good place to live. He sleeps 20 hours a day. Supposedly the house manager provides activity, but it never happens. This isn't life. This is just existing. So the team discusses whether to change his current treatment plan. Now what they do is home visits three times a week with the delivery of fast food lunches as an engagement tool. That's how they get him to stay with the program. They recall the instructions from Dr. Young, who is a consulting sci- uh, the consulting the psychiatrist on the team, who said, oh, just tell me when he hits 400. Fi- he's on Zyprexa, and that's the only med he's ever stayed on. And you all know that you know, Zyprexa is one of the medications, which leads to, leads, leads to weight gain and metabolic syndrome and, and diabetes and uh, uh, all the, the, whole, the whole story. So the team decides to leave the treatment plan unchanged. But a few case managers disagree and after the after the meeting they came to me and said hey paul listen you know we fa- we're failing miserably we're still here's a plan we're going to buy him food we're going to deliver it we're just deferring to what the psychiatrist says we're depending on him to come up with a solution to the obesity problem but that's not right we need to change our approach we say that giving him food is the engagement tool but why does it have to be food i mean couldn't we do something else we need another plan of attack We're sort of joking about it. We're waiting till he hits 400 pounds. Well, we shouldn't wait. What we're doing now is medically and morally wrong. So um, what do you say about this case? Fast food delivery. Let's just do a a brief. I mean, mean, you've all spent a lot of time on your own. We don't need to repeat everything you've said. But I'm I'm just curious. Um, The course of action, um, what's the the preferred course course of action of, of of, 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 of the dissenting case manager? Change in plan, okay? And um, why do they want? Uh, in, in terms of their personal motivation, uh, um, why um, um, why do they want to change it? Harm reduction. He's going to die younger than he would otherwise. Okay, so very very compelling reasons, um, and um, so don't harm the client, right? To to to, to break it down, you know. Um, okay. And so, what are the obstacles to, to the to their preferred course of uh, course of action? The psychiatrist doesn't want to change it, right? So you've so you got obstacles coming laterally and obstacles coming down vertically. Um, what might be some other obstacles? Yes, want to keep the peace. That's right, that's right. Um, um, descent is painful. I mean, it's like socially painful. Uh, maybe sometimes necessary, but it's, you know, you know, it's painful. Okay, so those are, um, but I think, I think, um, um, it's the it's the, the external obstacles the the you know you, you, you maybe you can't convince other team members and maybe the psychiatrist is just going to say no, right? And that's that's the you know the, the classic moral distress situation, right? You know what you want to do, but uh, objective external th- reasons mean that you can't. But um, t- just to make it more complex? Um, what are so s- suppose the dissenting case managers, wanted decided. To stick with the current plan, what are some potential feasible reasons they might make that decision? So we're kind of talking like beyond the case study now. It's easier, okay. So kind of the sort of CYA, like in other words, I like to say, well, I'm following the rules, yeah, okay. Maintain team cohesion, that's right. And so so what you're saying is that that people kind of are are accepting the doctor's logic, Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, right. Right, that's right, that's right, it's interesting. And th- th- uh, um, I remember from my own research, that, that was often uh, the, 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 the discussion. People said, you know something, this system, this set we have now, it's not perfect, but we know it's been working for three years, let's not mess with it, right? Because maybe if we mess with it, we'll get something even more imperfect. Yeah, 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 that's right, that, I, I think it's right. I, I, I'd written down, uh, um, like, uh, they should choose their battles wisely, you know. Um, Now, I think um, um, looking down, like what I have written down on the right-hand side, the obstacles to to, to possible actions, workplace hierarchy, you know, the doctor's in charge, lack of time to make up another treatment plan, can't convince other team members, choose your battles wisely, um, all those could lead to this feeling of, again, like being distressed, that, you know, you know what you want to do, and guess what, you know that you can't do it. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, So just to review a little bit before we go on, um, uh, and maybe for for, uh, for, for some people who just came in, um, two different types of moral issues in uh, in this kind of work. A, A dilemma when you don't know the right thing to do because the principles behind each contradict each other. And a moral distress when you do know the right thing to do but institutional constraints, in other words, the workplace realities, make it impossible to act on your convictions. So the one, I mean, one take-home lesson I hope you'll keep from, from this session is that uh, when your team starts to melt down or an individual starts to complain and feel bad about you know, the moral complexities, once the first step would be to figure out which is it. Right? Because it's not evident on the surface, right? It takes some thinking. It takes some an kind of conceptual analysis. Which is it? And depending on, and, and, and y- like you're, all, you're, all, you're already making progress towards a resolution if you figure out, is this person melting down because of moral dilemma or moral distress? Right. Let's talk more about moral distress. Um, because moral distress is not just a kind of a category, kind of, you know, an sort of abstract category. It's actually a physical feeling. And people, and there's some interesting research about this. Um, have, uh, uh, um, people it's mostly in like psychology, nursing, and social work have studied moral distress because it's so common. And they say, uh, they report that individuals will say, uh, I mean, I, when, when, when I get in one of these situations where I know what to do, but god darn it, I just can't do it because of the way my workplace is set up, I sweat, I shake. The rest of my day is shot because I'm very frustrated and uh, angry. Um, so, so you actually feel it in your, in your guts, basically. Um, um, it's not just a sort of, you know, um, philosophical category. People ref- re- uh, report um, um, psychological uh, signs that, you know, they feel uh, discomfort, they feel shame, they're embarrassed, they feel guilty, and, th- and, and sometimes it gets as bad as they, they, they perceive that their own kind of reason for doing the work is being violated. Like, if I can't help this guy avoid an early death, I mean, I feel horrible about myself, right? That's, it, it, can, it, can, it can get th- th- um, that bad. And also, isolation. Um, you know, in these, in, in the situations I'm talking about in these case studies, you know, they often ended up with a, a kind of like nasty division in the work group um, and a staff meeting which was kind of like, you know, um, kind of like a, a war, you know, where people would line up on one side of, you know, wanting to go down one direction for a treatment plan and other people going down another direction and things got very polarized and, uh, you know, each side felt isolated from the other. Um, and then, therefore, uh, you get some burnout. You get low morale. You get rapid turnover of, 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 of um of workers. So in the in the um case management team that I, that I, I was working with, I was there for 2 years. And in that those and this is about a, about um 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 a 10 person team. I guess psychiatrist, nurse and then eight 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 case managers. There was almost 100% turnover. Um yeah. I, yeah like the supervisor didn't, didn't know what she was doing in that <laughs> in that team but the uh, p- the point i'm just saying uh, the point of this slide though is just to say you know I, it's it's just not a category it's not just a category it's a it's a personally painful and actually you know clinically harmful phenomenon i mean if you have a 100% turnover you're not giving such good care to people i mean i mean we 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 all know that individuals you know with a lifetime of you know severe mental illness and m- you know marginality you know poverty um, they don 't have that many good healthy connections, and sometimes as 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 we know i 'm um, sure you know this uh, s- sometimes with, with certain individuals, their mental health team is probably the healthiest kind of social world that that they have yeah. for better or for worse i mean it's like, as, you know you, you would ideally they would have you know the social networks that are larger, but in some cases um, there it is, and if that team is constantly breaking down and people are quitting and, and new people are getting hired, that's not good. Okay, and ultimately for 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 for, for um, you know clients care. So, because it's so important to avoid, we have to work on and this will be the topic you know t- t- in a sense hovering up f- over us for the rest of, of of our morning. What are the predictable danger zones? In other words, when can we kind of see, Can can we develop a way of seeing possible moral moral distress of, you know in the distance? before it kind of crashes over us and starts to drown us. And um, the classic cause is A, up there, okay? The classic cause from the literature, from nursing, is that moral distress is caused by workplace hierarchies, and there's a clear opposition between what I want to do and uh, what a single person, typically like my supervisor or psychiatrist, tells me that I must do. Um, And let me talk about that for a second, just to, go back to the history here. So the notion of moral distress arose from nursing. And in the notion of moral distress, in particular notions caused by workplace hierarchies, you see um, some of the traces of, nur- of the special issues around nursing. <laughs> so in nursing, um, you typically um, like um, hospital-based um, clinical nursing, your work takes place in the physical presence of a physician, right? or, the, or the physician is down the hall or in the room. Now, the power differential between a nurse and a physician is huge, okay? And even more, the nurse and physician have very different occupational goals. And, you know, the whole history of nursing, right? I mean, nursing is care for the whole person. Physicians cure the disease or the lesion. You know, um, you know so like care versus a cure, you know, working with the whole person versus working with the disease process. I mean, you know, they, it's a team, but they really have different goals. Now, in <coughs> outpatient case management pe- for people with severe mental illness, the work day is spent outside the office, largely, right? It's not necessarily in the physical presence of people who have more authority than you. Often the psychi- well, in, in, in my experience, you can tell me what it's like here in LA County, the psychiatrist is often, uh, uh, um, kind of works with a number of different teams at the same time, does it work that way? Okay, so um, in Wisconsin, the psychiatrist was there two days a week, and that means three days a week that the psychiatrist was not there. So you're, you know you're not you're not under the gun of, of, of I mean directly physically. Um, um, direct supervision, like face-to-face supervision between a case manager and a supervisor, may take place only a few hours a week. A master's-level case manager may be supervised by a person who has a master's degree in social work. So the gradient, the power gradient, the kind of like status gradient, isn't isn't really that steep. Um, and um, most importantly, the, you know, the supervisors and the case managers have the same basic goals, okay? Um, you, know, the, you know, the minimal mandate of what do you do? Keep people housed, keep people stable, keep people out of the hospital, you know, you know out of the jail. And then the maximal goals, empower people to lead, you know, productive and, you know, lives with, um, you know, uh, allow people to, to, to flourish. Um, so, we, so that we, it's, we shouldn't take the notion of moral distress from nursing and assume that it fits perfectly. I mean, it fits largely, but not perfectly. We've got to tailor it. And um, see, there's a second cause of moral distress, which is the conflict between what the program guidelines say you should do and your own commitment to clients. So check out this case, uh, moral distress, walking the dogs. Um, um, let's um, let's go, 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 go through the case here in a large group and then, and then we'll do some, uh, you, you all do um, work in, in your small groups. So Linda is a recently hired case manager. Um, she just got her uh, BSW, Bachelor's in Social Work. She's excited about the job. Now, she has a lot of ideals. Okay, she wants to respect cl- cl- clients' individuality, learns their interests and strengths. She began working with a guy, Frank Mendoza, uh, who is socially isolated but loves his dogs. Turns out Linda herself owns a dog. And one weekend, outside of her normal working hours, she arranged to meet her client Frank in a nearby park and walk their dogs together. <laughs> now, when the supervisor learned about this, of course, they hit the wall, right? They told Linda that her actions were not allowed, that they were inappropriate, dangerous, and a serious ethical lapse. So, Linda comes to me, I'm of course, you know, the outside, outside anthropologist here, and, 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 and says, you know something, I, I think I did the right thing. Because in the community, these people don't have friends. They have cocaine dealers. They don't connect into any activity. They don't complain about it being isolated because they've been isolated and is sick for so long. They just stay home, watch TV, and eat. Um, my job, as I see it, is to help them live multidimensional lives. So that's how she sees her job. That's from moral commens- commens- immature Job. It's our obligation," she continued, "to let people know there's a larger world out there, and we fail miserably. We say socialization in the treatment plan, right? Client will receive socialization activities, you know, three times a week for the next six months. We get them in the community one time as a paid professional, but if it's not in the eight to four thirty time slot, it's not going to happen. Are you allowed to go out to an, an event in the evening? Do you know will interest a client? No. On the weekend? No. The rules don't allow it, and that's not fair. Yeah, you see, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. A burnout is coming, right? So, so in, in order to, to deal with this, though, before the burnout comes, work it through, okay? Here's a, another case for free to work on, a case of moral distress. So begin in your small groups with, the you know, again, like the, the left-hand side. What is the conflict here? What is the preferred course of action of, 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 of Linda? What are some other possible actions? Why does she want why does she support her own preferred course of action? What are the reasons for the supervisors coming down so hard? Right? Um, what are the obstacles and what are some possible ways to compromise? Okay? So take five or ten minutes and work through this case. You really picked up on the fact that she's she's young. She just you know she's maybe she's like twenty two years old. This, uh, this young woman, um, uh, and uh, maybe I, th- I think I heard people in, in this table say, uh, has she ever had a standard you know like ethics and boundaries thing? You know um, maybe not. Um, and so, one, so 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 uh, so just I'm just thinking about th- our long term goal is you know h- how, I mean um, how do you predict these ethical danger zones? How do you n- navigate around them? Okay, one is to make sure people are properly, uh, you know, advised, you know, from, 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 from the get-go. And don't do public shaming, right. which sometimes, does, sometimes, that does happen in staff meetings, right? Are people are called out <laughs> and, this is my own personal uh, ideals here, that's probably not the best way of helping people grow in the job. Um, uh, and, then, and then your notion, right, and, uh, was that, um, see, see the, way that this, this, the way she ends, she says, is it allowed on the weekend? No. The rules don't allow it and that's not fair. Now, I think what she's doing here is she's backing herself into a corner, right? And it becomes a sort of oppositional. There's the rules there, and they're unmovable, right? They're unchangeable. And there's my internal ethical compass here, and there's a grand canon between them, okay? And that is a, that's one of these danger zones. So if, if there are ways of sh- either, you know, you know, showing, well, yeah, the rules are there, but we can come up with a different way of working inside the rules. I mean, it's not rocket science, but yet, but nevertheless, sometimes it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah you know, so, 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 so but, uh, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge your passion, acknowledge the good stuff, acknowledge your ethical c- commitment, and then guide after that acknowledgement, and do it, and then do it in that order. That's probably a better way than the reverse. So, um, there is a lot of great pragmatic, flexible, kind of innovative thinking going on in the room. That's great. Okay. Um, what I want, what I want um, to focus on a little bit though is another commonality, which is issues of boundaries. And every, and every table was taught. I mean, you may not even have been using the word, but every table has been talking about boundaries. And the question of boundaries, is a re- I think it's a really difficult one for programs like FSP and, 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 and assertive community treatment. I'm going to give you three perspectives on boundaries. And this is sort of kind of like a classroom thing, like, kind of like artificially pure perspectives. Real life is muddier, but just to open up the conversation, here's one, psychotherapy right so here's um, um, a book from ethics in mental health care and she sa- they say the effective therapist works to establish and maintain a boundary that may appear artificial but eventually provides the emotional distance for the patient to develop an autonomous sense of self standard textbook by and uh, literally a textbook um this is like laura roberts by the way who for a while was head of psychiatry at stanford the west coast person um, and I think, n- like this table over there, I, f- I don't know your names, I'm sorry, but you were talking about boundaries, right? And, and I, b- I believe you said something else, which I, I thought was, was, was really, really smart. You said, you said, uh, I'm working with, I'm, you say, I'm working with you to uh, uh, help you make real friends or, or to teach you some, some skills yeah. to make real friends. Like, don't make me the friend, it's not like an artificial friend, I'm teaching you skills to make real friends, right? And that's a beautiful way of putting it, okay? And, and, and that fits this quote, okay? So. That's psychotherapy. And to some extent, what you do is like psychotherapy. Right? Here is Mona Waso, who is a, one of the, uh, a social worker from Madison, Wisconsin. She says, regarding uh, case managing, in any 10 minutes, a professional in a community support program, like FSP or ACT, may be expected to take a consumer out for coffee, which is friendship, and also hand out the medication, which is a professional. So where, she asks rhetorically, where are the guidelines for this blurring of boundaries? So that's another perspective ba- about boundaries. It's different from the first. This perspective says the boundaries are blurred. Right? The boundaries are not as clear in your line of work as they are for an office-based psychotherapist. Okay. So then to kind of keep on moving in the same con- in the same direction, here's an indigenous activist from Australia. And she says the boundaries for advocates, right? And she says if you come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you come here because your liberation in some way is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Now, this is the polar opposite of the first quote, okay? Now, you can decide what kind of sense to make of this. But for this quotation, and so this is outside of the world of mental health, but maybe it's relevant. For me, I was thought of this as... Um, Getting away from the helper and the helpee, yeah. right? Yeah. And part of the whole—if you go back to the, you know, the, rea- the really strict psychotherapy uh, boundaries—I mean, th- the strict psychotherapy, you know, classical, and actually goes back to Freud, um, notion of boundaries—it d- depends on the other person staying <laughs> in the role of the patient and me in the role of the doctor, I know right? What the word is, humanistic. Yeah, humanistic, yeah, yeah yeah it it, it, it it it's it's but see it's humanistic you're totally right in the sense of our joint identity as humans is what's important and that's more important than your identity as a patient and my identity as a doctor. This one says the most important thing is you know that person's a patient, the person needs something I want to give that person that thing and in order to give that person that that autonomous self. I got to have a strong boundary so it, it is it, yeah it I, th- I think the third quote does argue f- in it's humanistic, and so there, therefore, boundaries are a problem. I mean, in a sense, this is where most of you are, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. like, neither the one nor the other. Just a continued the, continue the discussion about boundaries. Just to throw in some more little mini case studies uh, from the literature. Um, what do you think about going out to a movie on a free Saturday with someone who's lonely and isolating, knowing the outcome would, would be good? which is sort of like the case study with the dogs. You know, you could kind of probably hand. This is the kind of thinking I want to try to encourage. You learn one case study in depth, you can totally apply it to that case, right? I mean, you, like you don't have to start from ground zero, right? Like we, we already have developed, you know, uh, you know a kind of a rich sense of the issues and how to resolve them. What about this one, the, the second one? So accepting a vase, a flower vase, a C- client gives it to you in appreciation of your help during his marital separation. You know, this client has a problem with overspending. Okay, so what do you say about that? How would you, how, if, if, you were, if you were the, the case manager who, you know, getting this base, or if you were the supervisor of that person, uh, what questions would you ask? How would you work it through? So, that's interesting. So, so in, in a sense, what you're saying is that accepting that gift was itself a bit of a therapeutic act on your part. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they they they're, I mean, they're. you're, you're, you're basically saying what you're doing is pro-social. What you're doing is good. I'd like to encourage it. Kind of like nodding your, nodding your head at someone who says something that you think is good. Yeah. Everett? The key issue is not whether you accept them. The key issue is what you do with them after you accept them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the, and so, and so, they, they literally see it with the two eyes on the wall. So, so accepting the gift is a way of like, of like, of like establishing and even kind of publicly acknowledging that this is an important relationship. That's interesting. So, so, so th- that's an example where the gift, the gift has a longer life mm-hmm. and d- d- doesn't just stay in your pocket. Actually, yeah. the gift kind of circulates. Yeah. Yeah. Along the lines of favoritism, though, there actually is another case here. Um, so I think that uh, another enduring ambiguity and sort of like another ethical danger zone here um, concerns equal treatment of clients. Right? And, and, there, and there is this ethical rule that you don't play favorites. You don't play favorites with people who look like you as opposed to people who don't look like you. You don't play favorites with people who are doing well and give them more resources as opposed to people who are st- still struggling. Right? I mean, that's a pretty strong ethical rule. Um, You don't let personal preferences, like I just like this person because of their personality, affect how you treat people. So um, I actually have two cases about equity. Um, Let's go through the first one, Uh, malt liquor and bad livers. So uh, here's a client named Ken Underwood who is an older person, um, carries a dual diagnosis, schizophrenia, and substance use disorder. Um, For several years, he lived alone. But he does drink heavily, and when he does, he neglects food shopping and preparation. Um, um, so eight months ago, his weight dropped danger- yeah, remember this guy right? His, his weight dropped dangerously low, and he's a tall guy, right, but very, very thin. And the case management team decided to go shopping for him and strictly monitor his alcohol and food intake. So uh, his case manager says, "Ken wants more money a week." the case, the, the team was the rep he wants an extra $20. Somebody says, well, you know, that buys a lot of cheap m- malt liquor, how much does he drink? And so they're they doing ass- kind of a rapid assessment there in, in the staff meeting. Well, you know, look, look at the trash, you know, but he can't really monitor it because he's taking his, 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 his trash out himself. What, what, what we want to do is make sure he drinks only two pa- six-packs per week. Okay. Mm-hmm which is like way less than he's drinking now. So the team decides that, that they should refuse his request for, for more money. Um, and, th- and the psychiatrist steps in and says, okay, this is what you should say to the client. We've decided that you're drinking and we're gonna keep it from escalating. We're not gonna give you the extra $20 you want because we're afraid you're gonna go back to the way you were before, and before he really died. He Almost died, almost died, he, he came really close to dying. So then the case manager says, hey, wait a second. We have another client on this team, Ed Zander. Um, We give him $5 a day, and we see him go to the liquor store as soon as he gets that money. Why are we treating these two people differently? So the psychiatrist says, well, Ken had wasted away. He has acute alcoholic hepatitis. His ALT, which is a liver function test, was 1,000, which is through the roof. So we had to do something. But Ed's liver function is fine. So, we have some degrees of restriction. We can let some people get away with more, but with others we have to help them stay healthier. So, to work through this case, um, we can do this kind of in, in, in a large group. So, there's a conflict going on here, a bunch of conflicts, but a conflict between what Mary wants to do and what Dr. Young wants to do, okay? So, the course of action, so it's, it's kind of like a, kind of like a, um, a group decision. The, 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 the group could decide either to agree to Ken underwood's request of an extra twenty bucks a week, or to refuse his request. Okay, that's the. This is this is a. This, this actually is a dilemma, not not distress. Okay, there are two ways of going. Do we agree to his extra twenty dollars a week or not? Okay, so suppose you. So let let's just work it through as a dilemma. Right. So th- we, ha- we, have, we have the two courses of action and they, and, they, and they contradict. So what would be the reason, potential reason, to agree to Ken's request of $20 a week extra? So treat everybody equally. In other words, don't play favorites. Okay. It's his money and remember driven. It really is, like legally it really is his money. And uh, um, can what can we do? Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. 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 So, just to, to play the game here, so the other p- course of action is to refuse his request. And why would he refuse his request? That's it. Okay. That's it. Okay. So, and and, and and I mean, I think for you, it's not a dilemma. For you, it's really clear. You want to protect the patient from harm. Now, they're back to beneficence. One way to avoid getting into an ethical firefight about this is to do more careful assessment. How do we know how he's going to spend the money? And before we do that, so you're saying before we do that assessment. We can't even have the ethical debate. Good point. By the way, so when I when I was a, a kind of early mid career person, I, I took a course in bioethics at our local medical school, and I audited this course. And on day one, the teacher said, um, "Good ethics requires good facts," and that and that's your that's your proverb. Good ethics require good ethics requires good facts. Like there are two different reasons, and they're really different to not give him the 20 bucks he, he wants. One reason is beneficence, you know, or paternalism, protecting from harm. But you're giving another reason, which is um, um, the opportunity to turn that request into a, you know, um, kind of a lesson in, in budgeting, a lesson in being rational, a lesson in means and thinking and all that. Two different reasons for the same possible course of action. That just shows you how, how complicated this stuff is. Um, Okay, uh, so uh, just in terms of the, uh, just to f- f- fill it out on the r- extreme right-hand side, the norms of medical ethics we're talking about, we're talking about, I mean, um, let's see now. By the reasons not to, reco- not to give in to his request, assuming, as Cornell had made clear, that he, he is planning to, to use it entirely on, on, on liquor, is, is paternalism. You know, we want to protect him from harm. You know, this is like a kind of a pedagogical point about teaching this stuff. By, when you teach ethics, it's always more simple. It's, it's always oversimplified. There's, there's like no way around it because, you know, a bunch of professionals like you in the room, you know how all the sort of like complications of these cases and all the ways of intervening. Um, ethics cases always appear a little simplistic. That's just, th- that's just the, the nature of the, of the topic. Um, but I, I just want, just for the sake of the ethics stuff, there's paternalism and beneficence as a way, as a reason to refuse his request. The reason to agree to his request one of them would just be autonomy. Now, people, people haven't another example of, you know, people should have the right to fail, okay? Yeah. It is the money. And then, but then there's another reason to, to refuse a request, which w- we haven't talked about yet, which is um, the equal application of rules to all people. Because maybe people don't like Ken that much. Maybe people are burned by the time that he almost died, and that was painful for them, and they want to avoid that at all costs. So they're not going to necessarily follow the same rules for him as they do for somebody else. Um, so along the lines of favoritism, there's one more case I want to work through, which in some ways is more the most compli- the, the final case made the, the list the most complicated one. And here's a case of moral distress. So here's a guy named Carl Looters. I call him Carl Looters. Um, this for people who work with the homeless population. this is a case for you. So he came into the ACT program four years ago when the sheriff in the county where I did my work conducted a sweep of homeless people. So they swept up all these encampments in the public parks and they pawned off the people. It was kind of a brutal operation. They pawned off the people to various agencies around town. That's how he ended up in the, in, in the, in the agency. So he's 51 years old, long, long, long history of, of a- alcohol abuse. He doesn't currently meet criteria for mental illness. So he ended up This is, you know, municipal bureaucracies and those kind of messy. So he ended up in, you know, as a client, even though he doesn't meet criteria. He doesn't receive Medicaid or Medicare. And so his case manager, this guy Tom again, has to every month apply for food stamps, a housing allowance, and $100 in in spending money. So this is a guy who people don't like. Um, When he's intoxicated, he's hostile. He gets enraged, he berates and threatens the case managers. He's always getting evicted. He refuses to sleep at shelters. What the team does is give him home visits, help with housing issues, and anger management exercises, which he pretty much thinks are a joke. The team is most is very very negative about Carl. So who here has people in their team that are constant di- like disliked? Disliked. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's this is clients. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. So uh, people who are disliked, caught, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's an issue, which, you know, we have to deal with it. The team says, listen, he's not on money. We're not managing money for him. He, he doesn't have a mental illness. He's just an alcoholic. And they're kind of moralistic. Like, he's just a, he's just a mean drunk, right? That, 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 that's what they're saying. No, no matter what we do, he's going to be angry. We're not really monitoring anything. He takes no meds. So we're not going to spend, because this, this case management team has, like, a petty cash kind of fund, which they can use sort of ad hoc basis. Um, um, and So they, they refuse to spend petty cash to buy him tobacco, which he wants, or other household items. Now, Tom, the case manager, thinks that he, d- he deserves more money. That's, where th- that's his phrase. He says, yeah, that g- you, it's good you notice that, because deserve is a loaded word, okay? But that is the word that he's using. Because I see engagement keeping him happy as a main issue. If he has tobacco and money, he'd be happy for a week. The team thinks that if we buy him tobacco and toilet paper, he'll use the rest of his money to buy alcohol. But you know there are multiple things attacking him. He's malnourished. And all this is true, by the way, because I I, I knew this guy. He's malnourished. He had difficulty walking. He has suicidal threats. He's very guilty over his brother's death. Um, And so now we're going to cut back services. He is equal rank as any other client. He deserves full treatment. So y- you can see the setup for you know, uh, moral distress. So Tom goes on, and he's, this is an interview, a one-on-one interview. He says, look, Paul, some clients are liked more than others. We don't like to talk about that. Some clients get a break because they're liked. Client A will get a break, but client B won't because cl- client B is not liked. If you're pleasant, you get that extra outing. You get that extra time. But I can't say that at the staff meeting table and still be employed. The, the, this is a moral distress, so there's a conflict between what, between what Tom wants to do and what the team wants to do, why do they each have their feelings, and, and what are some possible compromises if, if, if they exist. If you were in charge of this team, I mean, clearly th- this, this, is, this is a situation that's like headed for a breakdown. It's a situation where, where Tom is headed towards moral distress, right? Because he really wants to give this guy the money to give him at least some smokes, you know, have him, have him you know, uh, he, uh, he wants to, like, push back against the fact that the rest of the team hates Carl. And he is being uh, opposed by the rest of the team and by the supervisor. I don't think I said that here. So how would you, um, are there some compromises you could find to sort of avoid the uh, moral distress or lessen it? The, the team is saying no petty cash at all for whatever and whatsoever because we hate the guy. And Tom is saying, you know, this guy needs, you know, he, he needs petty cash to buy toilet paper and cigarettes and whatever. The team says, well, if we give him the petty cash, he might just use it on more, on more drink. And you're saying, well, no, there's a compromise here. Give him enough petty cash to pay for necessities, but not enough to pay f- for cigarettes, which sort of satisfies both sides. It sort of leaves both sides unsatisfied, but that's the definition of a compromise. It's a swap. It's right. a swap, right? Right. right? 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 We will give you the tobacco if, if you agree to use the tobacco paper rolling stuff as a chance to talk about your life. I right. will th- t- tell you that I never thought of that before. The notion of using the roll your own cigarettes because right. because these, these these case managers, of course, do you, always, do you guys do the, do you do like med setup like with with pill cassettes? Is that p- part of what you do? Sometimes. You, you, Oh, so oh, okay, so so in this in this in, in, in this setting, the case manager bringing the medications to the uh, to the client's home, you know, e- sometimes every day or once a week, and they would take the medications from the pills and they put it in like a little seven-day pill cassette. What we call what they're called, um, I mean, that would take a long time, and it would, could take like a good twenty-five minutes. And during that time, the the, the case manager would say, Well, now now. Um what is that for? That's for these symptoms and how many times you take it and you know, it takes some time and people's are and fingers aren't necessarily that agile. So it becomes like a little social activity just like rolling cigarettes. Yeah. yeah very interesting point. Okay. Uh, okay, so we just have um ten minutes left and I I wanna um get to the um the final point, which is uh kind of a set of steps, especially on the final page of your handout. But let me let me build up there a little bit, um and just to repeat things that people have already said. Just Kind of to take, we'll, we'll walk up the staircase pretty rapidly. First of all, you know, mor- moral distress comes about, as we know, because when, when what you want to do, you're not allowed to do because of outside objectives. And as someone in, in this r- table said, people who get into this line of work typically are very kind of morally kind of c- c- um, um, committed people. Okay, and these are quotes from a woman who did research with an act team in North Carolina. Um, and the people were talking about, well, wh- why did you take this job? I took this job not for the money. I took this job for the love. Right? This is not even a job anymore for me. Right? It's a life's work. It's a vision, a mission. It's a family. Um, I feel responsible for these pe- my clients. I can't let them down. People who st- work here and who stay here either adopt this mission or they go. Okay, so this is a this is st- starting point. Like if, if people didn't feel this way, they wouldn't experience moral distress. The stakes just wouldn't be that high. Okay? So it's important to, to, to just, um, just be clear about this. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip a slide. about the, the phrase that you find in the social work literature is the, um, the well-intentioned perspective. That's just a jargon phrase people use, you know. People have, I mean, I'm not so sure hedge fund managers have good intentions, um, but we do. We have, you know, we have a perspective. But we're, we're, we're in this for, you know, for really good reasons, for, for really high reasons. But this, per, so it's a, it's a self-image people have, right, their well, well-intensive perspective. And it is challenged by a bunch of different things. Um, it's challenged by first of all a kind of limitless responsibility to clients I was chatting with, with that, that table over there about the, f- and the FSP clients don't stay with a given agency for like 12 to two year, 12 months or two years roughly and, um, and you, may, you should know by the way act Which is the kind of parent model here that's set up for clients to stay with the agency for as long as they live if they need it You know about that. Yeah, okay, so so that is a big responsibility you're taking responsibility in really concrete ways every day. The com- and and um, um, in my experience with ACT, it's very, very, very difficult to um, um, discharge a client, right? Like there's nowhere for them to go, you know, basically. Um, so you stay committed to clients no matter what. And, and, and the clients do become you know, dependent on you. And in some ways, that's a good thing. In some ways, it's not a good thing. But, but the dependency is real. So your, your your perceived self-image, you want to do really good things for people, is challenged by the fact that they need so much, and no one could possibly meet all their needs. So that's one challenge. Um, let me right. And here, here's a, just, uh, just for fun, here's an interesting quote: "Your work is more difficult than doctors in this regard." And there's a book I read a long time ago by this uh, one of these books about a guy's first ex- experience as a as a, a first year resident. And he's talking about, just to show you how, di- how, how different your work is and how much more difficult, he's talking about um, um, working at an ER when he was a resident, and a, uh, a, a guy comes in um, with, um, who was admitted to the ER after a suicide attempt, okay? And so here's the quote, um, maybe the guy, the, the patient needed a civil commitment but the psychiatrist, you know, the, the the attending said that it was probably unfeasible to, to get it, and so the young man, that is the patient who was had tried to commit suicide, was free to go. I watched this young man leave the hospital, walk down the steps, and down to the sidewalk at the edge of a busy street. Besides me, beside me, and this is in the in the hospital entrance door, right beside me, there was a statue of Galen. You know who Galen was? Galen was the um, Greek physician, sort of like, like uh, um, a lot of our Ideas about medicine come from Galen, so ancient Greek. So the, the statue of Galen stared down at us. Kind a very dramatic scene. And the statue of Galen seemed to say, this is not medicine. This is not my sphere, my sphere of responsibility. So he watched the guy try to commit suicide until he disappeared into the warm night. So an excerpt from this book, uh, Becoming a Doctor. I think if you're a doctor, there is a limit on your responsibility. You know, you are responsible. If you're working in an, in an ER, you're responsible for the stuff that happens in that ER, in those four walls, and for the duration of the time that the patient is there. But if you're a case manager in a program like FSP or ACT, there's no limit. That's another challenge to the well intentioned point of view. Um, so, you have the self-image it's also challenged by your by th- your relatively low authority uh the people i worked with thank you very much the the the, the, the people i worked with in, in 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 the um in act program would always complain you know the probation officer doesn't return my calls the er doctor the er nurse you know ignores me the families blow me off you know it's 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 it's, it's difficult and then uh, we, we've already just to sum up uh, to, to repeat what we've said there are contradictions between. The program mandates, you know, the state law that says you can't spend money on tobacco, and 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 uh, what the clients say they need. And so, what do we end up with here at the end of an, at the end of our morning? We end up with a perfect storm, in my in my opinion. Um, here are some of the the ingredients of the perfect. I mean, the, the basic four ingredients. We see ourselves as compassionate and wanting to help, as beneficence. The program gives us limitless limitless um, um, responsibility, because we're like the last man standing for the people who have very, very complicated lives. The relationships sometimes are long-term, but even if they're short-term, they're very intense, and there's very, very low authority, you know. Um, So um, how do we navigate the perfect storm? And here we come to the final page of your handout, so if you can look at that, please. Um, so here's some practical steps when the, and just uh, here I am summing up stuff I've said, uh, for the whole morning, um, um ways of, um, um, handling the ethical issues that can divide the team, ethical issues that can take up precious time in staff meetings, um, ethical issues that can lead to like very rapid turnover and low morale. I would suggest first, Deciding if the problem is a moral dilemma or an example of moral distress. That's, I would say that's, that's step one. Step two, recognize what are the signs of um, distress. Are people, um, are, are, are people getting bummed out? Are people, are, is, is, is morale falling? Are people calling in sick? Are people quitting work and going off drinking? That's what the people in my, 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 <laughs> my group did. I mean, that's how they handle their moral distress, you know. Um, um and then um so so you know, kind of like in a sense like take the temperature of the of the team in that in, in that sense and then do an al- analysis of the case here's my my, my most direct suggestion you know we've we've, we've we've spent three hours today doing case analysis right you can do this on your own. You can take these cases back to your team if you want to, you know, j- use them. You know, um, or you can cook up your own cases based on, you know, ch- change the details of names and everything. But you know, uh, I mean, I think I think uh, uh, people working with homeless populations have a specific kind of case, or working with y- younger people, um, court order treatment, analyze the case, analyze the conflict between what courses of action people are 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 wanting to take. Why they want to take those motivations, and then even below that, what are the deeper personal reasons for those motivations, Um, and then pinpoint the core conflict, right? Like what's what's causing the conflict? Are there competing principles, autonomy versus beneficence, for example? Is it a case of one's own individual conscience pushing you to do something and the workplace hierarchy saying, no, you can't? Is that the core cause? Is it a conflict between your own commitment to clients versus what the pro, kind of more abstract guidelines of the program say? Like we were talking about like writing a treatment plan, the treatment plan verbiage has to be a certain way, and yet you know that what the client needs is something different. Okay. And then another point, which kind of comes up in another possible reason for the conflict, came up in the final case. You know, uh, resources are limited. You know, petty cash is limited. Um, uh, Time is limited. Um, And often uh, people want the client to have everything they need, but the world does not allow them to have everything they need. Maybe that's the core conflict. So just, I'm not saying solve these, but I'm saying identify them. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's too murky it becomes a sort of car, I got like a train wreck, you know, and all these different issues are floating around. Um, if, you know, so the, just the work of analysis, you know, and kind of patiently working through a case has any benefit. The, ben- the benefit is to sort of disarticulate, like, like, like take apart the possible, the possible reasons for the core conflict. And then I would say um, to make moral distress an open topic for discussion, right? Typically, people don't talk about it. Typically, they handle it on their own, between the two ears, you know, um, uh, after work, kind of, you know, in, kind of complaining about it, or they, or, they just, or they just, you know, they just stuff it, frankly. Um, and having moral dis- distress be an open topic for discussion, I think, could, c- can go a long way. And you all are mental health professionals. You know how to have this kind of discussion without, without you know, blaming and shaming. Um, Are there concrete ways to find, to honor the individual's conscience and to advocate for the client? And actually, a lot of the pragmatic thinking that we've been engaging in this morning is precisely that, right? You know, find a compromise. Find some way for the individual to say, yes, I am a good person. I am am committed to, 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 to this client. I can't do it the way I totally want to do it, but here are other ways. I can't go to the dog walk on Saturday, but maybe I can negotiate flex time or I can go to an event in the the middle of the week. I mean, there there are solutions out there, um, and it's not rocket science to to find them. And even if they're partial solutions or deferred solutions. And finally, I'll leave you with uh, two of my favorite quotes. Do you notice one for every complex problem, there's an answer that's simple, elegant, and wrong? and uh, so the complexity is part, I mean, I mean finding uh, an, an answer that is as complex as a problem as part of all helping professions. And people have criticized like Tom as some as other people, or Dr. Young. Like they get like a simple, elegant solution. Tell me when he hits 400 pounds. Right? It's clear. It's clear. It's simple. It may be wrong, but in the rush of, a, you know, of work, sometimes people glom out to it. And finally, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. And I think that is often what happens in these cases of moral distress. People get their back up against a wall. Say, if I do anything other than my ideal solution, I'm betraying, my, I'm betraying myself. And that's a recipe for, for disaster. A good enough response is usually possible. On that note, let me end and thank you for a great morning.